Hello, welcome to Shepherd the Sheep. Gino and I are back with a special guest, Peter Goman, and we look forward to hearing from him. But first, Anthony, bring us in. special guest with us today uh dr peter gumman doctor is it gumman or gaiman i heard i heard both pronunciations oh peter it, most most people say gumman but it is technically pronounced gaiman it's a uh, ah. german variant ah. Ah. those germans those deutsch <laughs> ah. yeah <laughs> see i was an english major ah. so i get i get a lot of the english ones right but not the deutsch ones ah. well thank you peter uh it's good to have you uh, we have a book from you that we've been reading. Uh, keep up with your articles. You've actually been to Vegas. I've actually met you. Um, you are friends with a family in our church, mm-hmm. uh, Feinbergs. And so I guess in a weird way, he's connected to Cornerstone because yeah. I think he influenced one of that, those guys and he influenced me. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm a Vegasite. So, yeah. See, <laughs> so, so Peter, you're, you are. You you are a part of the the rocks here at this church. Yes, we won't. You know. I, I feel like I belong in Vegas. Yeah, no, you do. You do. Um, now I got to be fair, um, because um, now this is some trivia for you. This is this is the first ever for Shepherd the Sheep. This is the first time that oh, we've had no. a guest on our show who was married by the previous guest of our show. Oh, that's so Jordan true. Baker. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think Jordan um, secretly wants you back in Simi Valley. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he's thinking. Well, we, we, we love Jordan Baker. We, we talk about him a lot. We were super thankful for his ministry. Obviously, he married us. And, yeah, we'd love to go back and, yeah, just see him visit. I don't know how long we could stay, though. Right, right. Yeah, it's a little more expensive <laughs> in Southern California than it is in uh, North Carolina, right? Correct. Yeah, I've actually been to Shepherd Seminary, which is where you're a professor. Yep. So. Yeah, so uh, we're right in Cary, North Carolina, which is right outside of Raleigh, and it's a it's a beautiful area. Um, lo- love it here. I think it's hot, but hey, you guys are from Vegas, so you know hot. Yeah, Chris, that's where you're going, isn't it? Yeah. yeah so Chris is actually going there. That's where he's being deployed next. Wow. Oh, out of Fort Bragg. A little bit further, he says. Goldsboro. Okay. Goldsboro. Yep. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, maybe you'll see him one Sunday. Maybe he'll pop in and say hi because you are the shepherd of the young adults at your church. Correct. Yeah, that's a, that's one of the things my wife and I love being involved. The, the seminary where I teach, Shepherd's Theological Seminary, is actually on campus of the Shepherd's Church. And so we're involved with the young adult ministry, helping lead that. So that's you know, uh, just a real joy in our ministry, just being able to walk uh, through life with these young adults who many of them are unmarried, but we've had, I think, I think I've done like seven weddings over the last year. Uh, so there's, there's a strong marriage contingent building up in that group now. Mm. So it's, it's fun to see. 
Wow. Wow. So, and you, you have a, you have one child, two children. So we actually have three now with another Lord willing coming in December. Look at that. Look at that. Yeah. We're trying to build up our, you know, children are the only thing that, you know, can, can demonstrate, you know, our, our worthfulness here in life, you know, so I'm, I'm being uh, facetious, but I, I think they're just such a pride and joy in our lives to just give testimony of God's goodness. In fact, I'll give you this tip here. Obviously, I, I love the Hebrew language. And so for our firstborn, uh, we, who was born in 2017, uh, we named him Tobias, which is the Greek variant of the Hebrew word Tov Yah, which is in Hebrew, Tov is the word for good, and Yah is a variation of Yahweh. So our firstborn we named Yahweh is good just as a reminder of, of God's goodness. So we, yeah, we just really rejoice in our children. We're so thankful to the Lord that he has given us some, some precious ones. Yeah. See, that's, that's great. We named our first one Isaac cause he was not planned <laughs> and we thought God was probably <laughs> laughing at us cause we were like, we'll have kids after seminary. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You can tell what class I was taking when uh, <laughs> when we named our first one Judah. I was like, "How's the oh, Old Testament survey?" <laughs> yes, perfect. Uh, so this is this is interesting. So you're Old Testament professor there um, at Shepherds. Uh, yep. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask. Uh, a, I'm gonna deviate a bit from from our pre-planned questions already. Uh, you know, this there's not a lot of professors that actually are full-time professors and have their foot in ministry. So there are some, but, but I've observed it's not, it's not a hundred percent. Um, not yeah. in the way, not in the way you're doing it. Right. I mean, I, I think most of the professors I know go to church and are doing the one another's at a minimum, but, but a lot of them are not in some kind of like ministry leadership role. So maybe, maybe help me understand like, or, or what has, how has that kind of helped you having a foot in the ministry role and a foot in the, in the academia role? Like what, what is that uniqueness kind of brought to the table for both academia and ministry? If you don't mind. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I think it's, it's a really helpful one too. And I have to say at the outset that a huge influence in my life were two individuals. So Mike Grisanti and Will Varner at masters, um, they were, they always modeled what I always thought it should look like in the sense that they were, you know, in the classroom teaching full time and yet they were so involved with their churches, you know, just pouring their lives into their saints. I remember multiple class times where uh, Dr. Varner would share just, you know, what was going on with somebody in church and he would get a little teary eyed because it was affecting him in just, because he cared about the people of the church and, and he loved them so much. And, and I love that. And I always told my wife that I hope uh, if, you know, I hope I can grow up to be like Dr. Varner like that. That just uh, is, is neat to see it on display. And because I, I had already been convinced that the church is everything. Um, the church is what, what Christ established in academics. You have a valuable enterprise to be sure, but, but really the church is the primary. It's everything. Um, you can, you can do without academics. You can, it's helpful, but you can't do without the church. And so I, I just really thought, you know, as I was formulating my opinion early on in seminary, that the priority always has to be being involved in the church for the church. Everything is, is 
serving the Lord that way, you can't make a huge break or a distinction. And so, you know, as the Lord moved and sovereignly opened this opportunity at Shepherds, because I didn't even know Shepherds existed until Dr. Pettigrew emailed me and said, hey, uh, would you be open to talking about coming here and serving? And the Lord just paved the way so graciously to do that for our family. And so we, we've been here now for seven years. But one of the things that I think is the greatest just takeaway for, for being involved, not just on the academic side, but also within the church, is that you see the ramification of theology or you see what really matters to people. I mean, mm. it's tempting sometimes in academics to talk about, you know, uh, fad topics, you know, there, there are fads and, and, uh, you know, different things that happen on a cultural level that come and go, but that same thing happens in academics. People are talking about, you know, the use of the Greek genitive, the use of the perfect, the middle voice, you know, talking about the Hebrew, you know, usage, cognate relationship with Akkadian and all those things. And half of your listeners just said, wow, that makes no sense. What did we just talk about? <laughs> and that's the point, right? Yeah. The point is you can become, you can become really infatuated in those things and it's, it's really cool to be a, be a part of those discussions in some ways. Well, I'm a nerd. I think it's cool. But on the, on the real level, in the church, maybe 0.0001% of people care about any of that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's so grounding to, to just really be humbled a lot of times when, when I'm you know, studying Hebrew, preparing, preparing lectures and things like that, and then I run across somebody who just lost their job, and they're in tears, and they— they want to know if they can trust the Lord, you know, and, and so then it's like, wait a second, am I really dealing with what matters here? I need to make sure that I'm grounded into addressing things that are useful for my fellow brothers and sisters, not just hitting these esoteric topics, which, you know, maybe, maybe the very highest level of pastor is going to be able to understand, but the, the lay people who aren't interested in all those details, you know, they're, they're, they're really going to miss out on things that, Lord willing, I could help them with uh, because of the training that I've undergone and, and worked through that. So all that to say, kind of a long-winded answer, but all that to say that I think that there of necessity has to be a relationship there. It helps keep you grounded and helps give you insight into what people are really going through and what they need to be introduced to, reminded of, and taught. Yeah, That's... and that doesn't... Yeah. Sorry, Gene. That oh, doesn't negate yeah, your role at all either, because I know as a pastor, when you're studying week in and week out, you know, I I become thankful for for a lot of the great scholarship that's out there, you know, in terms of helping understand why those discussions maybe are important to a specific text, um, the historical background of a specific text, and even some even even like the you know uh, the more theological books that are putting together different doctrines like those are helpful too because we don't we actually i think a lot of people don't realize we really literally don't have time to study that stuff mm -hmm. right yeah and right. you can't be an expert in everything so at some level you you know as a pastor with pastor hat on you're, you're always discerning in what you read but but you do end up relying on guys who are in those trenches uh to help you see and understand better so that when you're preaching right in a way it's not me in the pulpit it's it's me under under the headship of Christ and the Holy Spirit, but but Peter's there and other professors are there and other other theologians are there, you know, dating back two thousand years now, who who are helping who have helped shape 
what what's being preached. Mm-hmm. You know, and I would add to that. I think that's exactly right. I, I would add that if you have scholars who are in the church and they're aware of these things, that can help shape their work, uh, whether whether it's coming out with articles or books or whatever. It helps me. I know when I, whenever I'm podcasting, writing articles, or or writing books, when I'm going through those things, one of the major things that I'm thinking about is, okay, is this going to be helpful for pastors? Is this going to be helpful for church leaders? And if I don't know kind of how people in the church are thinking about those issues, it's going to be very difficult to bridge that gap. But like you're saying, I want to try to take a lot of the work off the shoulders of pastors by giving them some good resources where I've done some of the grunt work, looked through some of the original sources, worked through some of the language issues perhaps, and then given that to them so that they don't have to do all the original work. They can assess what I've done, evaluate it and say, yes, that makes sense. Or they can reject it too. I, I think that's, that's fine. But, but not having to do all of the same work, but, but hopefully I can serve in a way where I, lay the groundwork and then and then the pastor can appropriately take that and then apply it on the on a specific level to to their individual church. Yeah, that's so helpful, Peter. Thank you for just that that philosophy is so helpful to the church. Um and it shows I don't I, you know if I could plug your um your your website and and your your uh, podcast the Bible Sojourner, is that correct? Correct, yep. Yeah, it's so useful um and it's uh, the way you communicate is uh, you can tell that you have a heart for people and what they care about and how they're, how they're thinking so that even whether they're a scholar or just a layman, they can read your stuff and, and, and walk away with helpful stuff. Yeah. I actually, one of your, one of your, um, one of your podcasts, I'm not going to mention which one, but you're kind of um, disagreeing with a, with a certain audience. And what I appreciated about your disagreement with a certain audience was that you handle them with respect and tried to represent their view accurately, mm-hmm. um, which I think is very important because what what I'm seeing on the internet is we're getting faster and faster to mudsling and mm-hmm. to, to kind of like draw these lines in the sand and say, Oh, you're a heretic cause you don't agree with me. And, and so what I appreciated about that is I felt like even if I disagreed with you, I felt like you weren't like, you know what I mean? You weren't doing those things. You weren't drawing a line in the sand. You weren't, you know, claiming heresy. You were saying, Hey, here's some things that, that I would just challenge you to think about, you know, even if it was in your approach or what you said, or here's some missed, here's some things that I think maybe you don't understand about the other side, which you were representing the other side. So you you did it really well. I was really, really happy and thought, yeah, I could, I could even to an opponent, I could say, here's how you should have the discussion. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I, I do try because because I I do think the Lord wants us to be you know gentle and kind and and uh, be patient with others, forbearing, and you know ultimately applying the golden rule, you know, doing unto others as we would have them do unto you. Mm-hmm. And I do that imperfectly. I, I wish I was much better at it, but it does encourage me that uh, that that comes through because I do try to be uh, be that way. But uh, I can always do better. But I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Well. So, and and in line with that, you know, you just um, one of the you just put out a book on baptism, and um, I think I'm going to ask you a question, kind of about baptism. Um, would Would you mind just like if I I'm one of your children? Hey, doctor, could you explain like 
why do I need to be baptized and, and what, what is baptism? Yeah. Well, you know, this isn't a hypothetical for me because I have very young children. So right. I literally tell them what baptism is all the time. Actually, uh, a really cool story about this was I had the privilege of baptizing one of the, one of the young men in our young adult group just last year, I think. And, and so the way our church looks, our church is pretty big. I think the uh, main sanctuary seats about a thousand or, or maybe a little more than that. So it's a pretty big church. And on the, so the baptistry is, is up elevated above the congregation. And that's where the baptism happens usually. And so I was up there or I was going to go up there with this, this young man to baptize him. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to, this is a cool opportunity. I'm going to take my two boys. They were uh, five and three at that time. And I say, okay, you know what? You guys have to be very well behaved, but I'm going to give you a behind the scenes. You look at baptism. So I brought them back behind uh, the stage kind of, as it were with me. And they were right out of sight, like, you know, five feet away from the baptism tank watching, you know, baptism take place. And they, they thought it was the coolest thing in the world that they got to be the closest, you know, out of anybody. And, and I did it because I thought to myself, well, this is such a neat opportunity to just give them a close-up view of what baptism is, and then we'll have a chance to talk about it. And so I explained a little bit ahead of time, then afterwards we had more of a detailed discussion about what actually happened here. And so when I, when I explain, you know, to the kids or to anybody what baptism is, you know, I, 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 I tell them, you know, biblically speaking, as, as the Bible defines baptism, it's a profession of faith, a confession of allegiance to Christ. And in baptism, we have the representation of our union with Christ in his death being symbolized of going under the water and then his resurrection being symbolized coming out of the water. So very simply, baptism is a, is a symbolic gesture of our profession of faith in Christ. Uh, it's, you know, you read the New Testament, that's how it's always portrayed is that this is something that somebody does to make a confession or profession of faith. And then symbolically, it represents our real relationship, our real union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's through that union that we, as Romans 6 talks about, we walk in newness of life. So it's our confession of faith, our allegiance to Christ on a personal level, but on an objective symbolism level, it's representing our death to self, our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And of course, there are many more details, but that's like at the basic level when I'm explaining to my kids, this is how we start. And then from, from there, we can go out and talk more, more details. But, uh, you know, the, the follow-up, you, you guys might find this interesting, is on the drive home, they had little VeggieTale characters and they were practicing baptisms in the back uh, mm-hmm. car seat. So that was, that was kind of fun. Mr. Broccoli gets dunked in the cheese sauce, of course. Oh, exactly. wow. <laughs> baptize that broccoli. Gotta, gotta, that's got to make the broccoli good again. Yeah. Make that broccoli great again. Uh, hey, so, uh, Peter, on that note, too, um, are you, in terms of, you know, you, you have the one story in Acts where, where, he's bat, where, you know, he's baptized privately kind of along the road. But outside of that one event, from, from what we can tell, baptism's primarily a church function as well, right? Like it's primarily done in front of the church body. Um, yeah. I, I think anytime you see baptism taking place in the new Testament, even, and if I, you may well correct me if you're wrong, if you're referring to the Ethiopian eunuch, um, yeah. who's baptized by Philip, 
even there, I think a lot of people understand that it's not a, it's, it can't really be a private um, setting because somebody like that would never, would never travel alone. So there's going to be, you know, the, the wording we often use is a public profession of faith. And it's not a private thing where, you know, it's just you and you, and somebody else in your bathtub and you just dunk it or whatever. Um, the point is that you are showing allegiance to Christ as a public testimony. And usually that takes place in the context uh, of the body of the church. Now, in some missionary context, obviously there there's a you know, different setting there where maybe there is no church established yet. And so there are differences uh, where that could be considered. But yes, the, the public nature of the baptism, I think, is, is uh, very, very important. Yeah. Would you, because of that, do you, do you have a problem if somebody comes to you and says, hey, look, I got baptized when I was 20 years old. I'm 44. I feel like I understand the gospel better. I'm thankful for this church and I want to be baptized in front of this church. Like, is that, is that something like, like, what's your take on that? Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a, a great opportunity for discipleship, just uh, being able to meet with this individual, talking about what baptism is. And, and that would be, you know, I would be more kind and patient in how I explain this to, the, to an individual who, who does this uh, or who would have that, this idea. But one of the things I would want to be clear about is that baptism uh, is, is an unrepeatable act. Uh, meaning that it's it's meant to be uh, done one time, symbolizing your union with Christ, and it, by definition, it can't be repeatable uh, by the nature of what it is with your with your uh, your perseverance in Christ, your your eternal union with Him in salvation. But a lot of people might think, okay, well, I want to have affinity with this church, and so I want to be baptized here. But then that would be a great opportunity to take you know, take them to coffee, put my arm around them or whatever, and just explain the nature of baptism and the nature of, you know, obviously we hold to the importance of the local church, but we also need to talk about, you know, how, how there's a universal church as well. And baptism is what corresponds to the Lordship of Christ and exercising faith in him. And that's not something that you can compartmentalize to different locations or different local churches. That's something that spans, you know, all across the globe, even if you went over to India or Africa, it doesn't matter. You were still already baptized in the same Lord. The only, the only thing which is, and I think as Americans, we, we sometimes uh, confuse this issue, but, but we, we've kind of divorced baptism from getting saved a little bit. And so if you go to other places in the world, they would, they would kind of laugh at us in some sense or be confused because, because for many Christians around the world, to be a Christian means that we're getting baptized because you can't be a Christian and not be baptized. But a lot of times we think in compartments and we think, oh, I'm saved. I could get baptized some other time. But historically, that's not been how Christians have thought about baptism. We think of being baptized is what it means to be a Christian because that is the, uh, that is the pathway of obedience primarily uh, to following Christ. Yeah, it's, you know, started reading more church history the last five years of my life. And I guess that even makes sense of that point too, because some of these guys, you almost scratch your head and go, wait a minute, do they see baptism as, as this, like where regeneration takes place? But maybe what you're kind of saying is that that relationship is so connected 
that maybe it's more synonymous, you know, than, than kind of what we in America do where we've distanced them a little bit. Well, there are definitely people who did view baptism as, as a means of regeneration. That's, that's pretty well established in church history. But I think you're right. I think there are other people who were just following New Testament language. I mean, even if you read the New Testament, there are passages which seem like he's saying, well, I mean, flat out in 1 Peter 3, 21, you have Peter saying baptism saves you. And you're like, well, what does that mean? And, you know, my take on that is simply that he's, he's just associating baptism with salvation, saying, listen, uh, when, you're, when you're baptized, that is when you become a believer. That is when, uh, when you are exercising faith in God and you want to, you want to uh, solidify that through the baptismal process. And the one thing, I read a book by Tom Schreiner one time, and he and one of the things he said uh, was, was that in the early church, what you had was you had nobody ever even contemplate existence as a Christian uh, when they, apart from baptism. In other words, if you were to sit down with the Apostle Paul, this, is, this was the example Schreiner gave, uh, if you were to sit down with Paul and say, oh, when did you become a Christian? He said, okay, January 22nd, whatever, whatever. And like, oh, and when did you get baptized? Paul would have said, you just asked me that question. What are you talking about? Hmm. And, yeah. and I, I think that, that that's, a, that's a very profound point is that uh, for so long in, in church history, there was, there was no difference between the two. And so that's why I think one of the reasons why it becomes confused uh, early on in church history is because the New Testament does talk about it in the same breath. And I think we can make theological distinctions. I think the scripture is, is very adamant about grace alone through faith alone being the means of salvation. But I also understand why people confused uh, baptism uh, with the means of regeneration at times, just because there is, there is a link associated. But I think we've gone too far in the opposite direction of sometimes where we say baptism is either a secondary role of what it means to be a Christian or anything. Uh, we, we just try to relegate it to a second, second tier issue where it doesn't really matter when, when really, I mean, the new Testament talks very strongly about, about the importance of baptism. Yeah. I can't remember one of the THM classes that I took, we talked about the word baptizo and I, I can't remember. I think I know which prophet was, but I don't want to throw him under the bus if I misunderstood him, but he brought up even that the translation that there's that there's a whole debate in Bible translation on even the word baptism, and that they're they're transliterating it more so than actually translating it to the concept of immersion, which the word baptizo actually right. So, like, if I said, "Hey, I, yeah, I moved to Vegas and I got immersed in in the community there," I might use the word baptizo. And so, you know, so he kind of said, like, "Hey, it, you know." sometimes we even see that word and we kind of run to water baptism and forget that there's, there's something, some maybe even bigger being communicated there. Like, um, yeah. So I don't know, is my understanding on that correct? Or is it possible that, uh, that I'm missing some nuance? No, I think, well, and that's the thing is I think you have to, uh, one of the things I, I really try to advocate for is that you want to take each, each context in, yeah. in its, in its own perspective, right? Yes. You want to make sure that you uh, are looking at these texts. I think a lot of times, especially when it comes to like passages, 
like I mentioned, First Peter three twenty one, or sometimes Acts two. A lot of times, the only thing that is mentioned is, um, well, it can't mean this, and so let's go and talk about you know something else. And and I think that's that can be helpful to a certain degree, but but we don't solve Bible passages by saying what it can't mean. Right. We need to assess it contextually, and so. Yeah, I think I think that there are plenty of passages where, you know, like Romans six is a big one where it talks about baptism, but then it talks about it from a bigger perspective of the theological realities behind it. Now, some people have, I mean, well, there's a lot of directions you can go on that, but all that to say that, that yeah, I think that there's there there's definitely different aspects of that that are brought out in different passages. Yeah, I think that was that was his point. Again, I don't want to throw that prof under the bus if it was. Uh, without kind of telling him I'm quoting him because he was very secretive, like don't don't show anybody my notes. Um, so uh, <laughs> you probably know who it is now too. But but I think that was our discussion in Romans six. Is he was like is he is he specifically here trying to mention water baptism, or is this more the idea of union and you've been immersed in Christ? And the word the only word he has to use to describe that immersion into Christ is the word baptizo. And, um, so that was, that was interesting for me. That was kind of help that, that has influenced my understanding of baptism. Now, again, I'm open to being wrong on that, but I think it kind of even coincides with your point of each context has its own, has its own meaning and brings to bear something to the discussion. And that's, that's even where we get the idea that baptism is symbolizing our union with Christ. Yeah. I will say too, though, uh, on that point, just, just, you know, as kind of a added bit of spice to the conversation that Ooh, like going spice. into writing the book, which I, uh, you know, I think going into writing this book on baptism, I, I just assumed that there were, you know, so many passages out there just cause I think maybe this is what I had internalized growing up and being taught that there were so many passages that when it talked about baptism, you could kind of spiritualize that. Yeah. And it really kind of struck me that, many of these passages that I always assumed could be just metaphors or spiritualized probably were talking about water baptism in the sense. And, and I'm not saying that I'm not saying that you can't have a reference to the spiritual aspect of that, but I was just struck as I was studying some of these actual contexts and trying to look through church history that again, I think it comes from an Americanized, um, kind of putting baptism at a second tier, oh, get saved, and then at some point you can think about baptism. But for the early church and those people living in the New Testament, I really do think baptism, being immersed in baptism, uh, I do think that that had, you know, I just think that that was such a big part of what it meant to be a Christian, that it shows up in so many different uh, places. For, for example, even, even in, you know, Titus 3, you know, talking about, um, in Titus 3.5, you were washed, um, regenerated by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Well, I actually do think, and I, I can't prove this definitively, but I would lean toward the fact that he's talking about their baptism experience because baptism was always linked with that repentance from sin and commitment to Christ. And so, yeah, it's again, it's one of those interesting, you know, that, those, those are one of those interesting points where, you know, you don't get to talk too much about it, uh, you know, when you're preaching or anything like that. But, but I do think it is helpful uh, to, to just reassess those sometimes saying, you know, I think maybe some of these could be interpreted as water baptism. And there's nothing wrong theologically with that. And there's 
Right. Either way, it, it could work. You're still within orthodoxy, but I, but I do think, you know, as, as Christians, we, we ought to give more prominence to baptism. And of course I'm biased because I wrote the book on it. Right. So, whatever. Right. well, but no, but I think your point there's, you know, it's interesting because, you know, your point's very valid. Even as I read these church history, right. Baptism is definitely like, like the way they beat that drum compared to the way the American church beats that drum is we're, we're not, we're not using the same drum and we're not using the same drum beat. And it right. almost makes sense that that drum beats beating louder which which actually then helps me explain why somebody might confuse and say something like, well, you can't be regenerated unless you're baptized. And so that, that relationship's almost so close that I can understand why somebody would, would make that statement, even if I disagree with that statement, because I agree with you that we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone as a gift by God's grace, that, that, that and I, it's not the actual symbolic act of... of you know, even even if you just sprinkled, right? Like, even though I disagree with sprinkling, and I'm I'm in the immersion camp, um, right? But I, I'm not going to say a brother who's been sprinkled hasn't been baptized. If he wants to call it his baptism, okay, I'm you know I'm not going to fight that battle with him. But, um, you know, all that to say that like, I can see why that that linkage, and I think your point's valid, right? It is possible. What did what did the people? what did Titus's audience hear? And when he said washed, like if baptism was made a bigger deal in church history, right. They might've been like, Oh yeah. When I was baptized, I was baptized because you know what I mean? So I think your point might be valid. Well, is is there something missing in the modern reader's mind um, that that was there historically new Testament uh, people of that time when they heard the word baptism, was that like, you know, for today, if someone wanted to join a gang, well, sh- prove it, like get jumped, you know what I mean? Or like oh, yeah. go through this process. Um, right. Was the idea of baptism, it, it was the, I'm assuming it wasn't necessarily a Christian practice only, right? Or was Well, it? and that's, that's a bit of a debate, but, but, okay. you, but you're right. It's, I think the evidence is, is almost uh, insurmountable that there were, other, there were other baptisms or immersions going on. I think... Uh, basically, my so, so there are two other ones that we know about for sure. There was actually a Jewish proselyte baptism. So if you oh, converted yeah. to Judaism, part part of the process would be you would be immersed as part of a washing and a cleansing to to convert to Judaism. Basically, now the only issue with that is that uh, we don't have record of it before I think the second century AD. So it's we're not sure if that was actually in practice during the time of gotcha. Jesus yet or not. Okay. Yeah, but I'm- the one that Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, because I, I was just thinking about John's baptism and uh, you know, yeah. where, where he got that. Exactly. And and so John's baptism, I think, most likely comes from these ceremonial washings, which were present already, even from the Old Testament. And so it just becomes all the more. And it's actually interesting because with regard to these ceremonial washings that come in the Old Testament, uh, and if you ever go to... Israel, what you see in all, almost every location, at least every uh, religiously significant location, especially Jerusalem and these worship uh, centers around the temple, you see all these uh, things that are called mikvah or mikvahot if you're in the plural. And what the mikvah is, is basically a ritual bath. And so during the time of Jesus, if you were going to approach the temple, you would go down and you would dip in that water to cleanse yourself, and then you could approach the temple. 
And so a lot of people say this seems to be a very strong backdrop to what the baptism practice is, is doing is you have this purification ritual and, and basically when John comes on the scene, he kind of gives credence to that saying, repent, I'm, I'm doing a, a baptism of rep- repentance where the whole point of being, uh, being dunked or being washed is to communicate and represent this repentance from your sins and following God in this, in this, in this way. And so that same kind of pattern seems to be um, picked up by the Christians then, because uh, John's baptism isn't exactly identified as the Christian baptism, mm. but all the language that's used uh, just seems to borrow from John's baptism. And so I make a big argument in the book that basically Christian and others have made it too. I'm just recapitulating it basically is that Christian baptism, basically it's forebearer is John's baptism. Yeah. Well, and a, and a huge component of, of what you said earlier to kind of to shift to a different detail is that it is a profession of faith. And I, and I know that's hotly debated um, in church history and among you know, if I sat down people from, you know, 12 different denominations and said, you don't, you can't get up from the table till you agree, they would just all die at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, but you're, but, but right in, in your understanding of baptism based on, right, your, your research from scripture is we're talking about what we see in scripture is habitually um, the people that are baptized is because they, they have accepted Christ and trusted their soul to him and you know repentant of their sin and they they have faith in christ yeah absolutely you know it's it's interesting you you say that um not not very many people could could agree on that and that's true to a certain degree but i would also say that even people who would disagree with me on on baptism um like you know uh, my my dear friends in the reformed pato baptist um, community, they they may disagree with me on on some ins and outs, but actually, uh, they would they would probably agree on the fact that baptism is a profession of faith. Now, the the issue is actually um, is that all that it is, or is is that um, the only place that it that it's um, that it's present or, or here's the issue. And I'm thinking specifically of a quote. I was just trying to look through it because as soon as you said that, I'm like, Oh man, if I could find this quote, it'd be great. And I actually just found it. And cause in my book on not to continually refer to my book, but well, you, you, should, it up. you so did write it. It's your you, fault. Should, you should, it, <laughs> but, no, no, uh, you should. It's not we're, you're not self grandizing yourself. We, we, <laughs> this is like, yeah. 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 And well, the reason I brought it was because this, this was one of the things I was, debating in my mind was, okay, you know, is, is this something that we could all agree on that baptism is a profession of faith? And lo and behold, John Calvin actually has a few quotes where he actually says that. In fact, uh, so this, this is actually page 176 where I give one, there's a couple of these quotes that he has, but you know, John Calvin is, is the premier defender of infant baptism. And, you know, he's, he is the you know, herald of reformed theology and, and so respectable in so many ways, you know, I've benefited from so much of his work. And this is an area where he and I agree, right? And so this is what Calvin, who's himself a Pato baptist 
says about baptism. He says, but baptism serves as our confession before men. Indeed, it is the mark by which we publicly profess that which we wish to be reckoned or that we wish to be reckoned God's people, by which we testify that we agree in worshiping the same God in one religion with all Christians, by which finally we openly affirm our faith. So, I mean, well, you know, it's one of those things where I say baptism is a confession and a profession of faith before men. And even John Calvin says that. Yeah. Uh, so it's not it, that in, in my mind, I know you, you said it very delicate, delicate, delicately about saying, well, maybe people wouldn't agree with that. But technically, even even within the Reformed community, this has always been, you know, the main idea is that baptism is a profession of faith. The only difference, and that's when you get into the weeds of, as my book does, of, uh, you know, the infant baptism versus uh, believer's baptism, is the, the big question then is, if it's a profession of faith, then how can you baptize kids or, or infants? Kids are fine, but infants who, who can't profess faith. And so Calvin has answers to that. Other people have answers to that, of course. Yeah. And, you know, I know we can get into that. We can get into other things. There's so many things we can talk about. But my big point is that even even those who believe that you can baptize infants, they would still hold to baptism, or at least most of them would, hold to a baptism as a profession of faith, just because it's it's very, very clear in the New Testament that that's what's going on in in the stories in Acts. Yeah, that's it's interesting. Carl Truman in his book on grace, Grace Alone, uh, at the very end, he actually even says, you know, if we kind of throw out the disagreements that all the baptisms camp camps have, we actually agree on a lot. If we're willing to realize there's actually a lot of agreements and his point is connecting that to, you know, even all of our universal understanding of the role of God's grace in baptism. And so, um, yeah, yeah. So, so you're right. And, and, that, and I know a little oversimplification on my part, but, um, yeah, I just I know we're probably not going to solve that debate ever in our lifetime. Right, um, right. I, I always tell tell my 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 friends that I disagree with on baptism. I'm not going to nudge you around the banquet table and say, "See, I told you so." But <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but you know, who knows? They're going to get to heaven. They're going to have something, and they're going to be like, "See, I'm like, yeah, okay, that was funny." Yeah, well, we all are, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not glorified yet. So, yeah, but. I think that's helpful. I, you know, we, we definitely in Cornerstone are, are on the um, believers baptism, which is what it's called. And, and like you just noted, um, not trying to, to say that those who disagree aren't um, acknowledging the role of faith in baptism. Um, but, but right. That's, I mean, that's what we call the non pedo view, right? Believers baptism. Right. Yep. 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 So, yeah, I mean, you got to, at the end of the day, terminology always breaks down, but you got to, you got to have something sometimes to, to hang your hat on. So, no, that's good. I, um, I hope people will read the book. It's definitely an important topic. Uh, it is interesting to me that we kind of have, I hate to use the word sacrament, we kind of have two elements in the church that are very visual, uh, that, you know, cause we, you know, coming from the circles we do, we, we talk a lot about preaching. And so I'm not downplaying preaching. Uh, singing's important. Praying's important. The one and others are important, but it is interesting to me that, that we have two visually st- stimulating um, events in the church 
that are meant to be practiced that visually communicate with our eyes, ears, taste, and touch, um, you know, our union with Christ. And one of them is baptism and the other one's the Lord's Supper. And so, uh, you know, even, right, even 2,000 years later when with all this technology, God knew, hey, one day they're going to have computers, but um, this baptism thing is still going to be important and even the Lord's Supper, and they both communicate union. And to me, that's amazing. Yeah, Yeah, I think in the Lord's Supper, what's unique is we almost proclaim our union together in Christ, and in baptism, there's a union. We're we're proclaiming or affirming our union with Christ. Um, That's the way I've been, like, kind of working it out in my head, and there's a beauty to that, so. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I think that's great. Yeah. So next up, uh, Lord's Supper book. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. You know, somebody, somebody else actually said that too. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll consider it. I, I honestly have like half a dozen uh, uh, short lists of, of books I'm trying to work on here or there, and so, but that is one of them because I actually, here, I'll give you just some some more added salt and pepper for for the podcast here. Is that I've become more and more convinced that the the new te- the new covenant sign is not baptism, but the Lord's Supper. And I don't know, but that's Uh-oh. controversial Uh-oh. for some people. Uh-oh. Some people are <laughs> are uh, like, oh, that's crazy. But I just think, I mean, a lot of times we just assume, in fact, the multi-author volume that came out, I guess it was probably like 15 years ago now or something, edited by uh, um, Shriner and I think it was um, Will Shriner and Wright, I think. I can't remember the guy's last name, but but they basically in the subtitle is "Believers' Baptism: The New Covenant Sign," and I think a lot of people just assume that it's the New Covenant sign. But I think if you actually go through the text, nowhere is the baptism called a covenantal sign. Nowhere is it referred to as a seal of the covenant. I mean, I think I think we run into some problems, especially if if the New Testament or covenantal signs were typically repeatable or, or there's some sort of permanent mark involved with them like circumcision or the rainbow. And so baptism doesn't exactly fit those categories. And I think the Lord's supper is actually utilizing that kind of terminology uh, elsewhere. So anyway, I have thoughts for how that might work, Hmm. but uh, maybe it'll be a little too controversial for people. Well, I always remember like if they're like, Hey Peter, can you write a book on the Lord's supper? The, the best pastoral answer to give is, you know, let me pray about that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, but but I'm actually, I actually might be with you on that. Um, in, in 12 years of ministry, now here in Vegas, 12 or 11, I don't know. Like, I'm not a math guy. So uh, I've we've come to see that the Lord's Supper is a way bigger deal than I thought it was when I left seminary. And to the point to where we're every other week, and might at some point try to figure out how to go every week and actually even yeah. moved it from the end of our service to the middle of our service because of, you know, it's gospel, procl- it's gospel proclaiming, reconciling, you know, it encur- the way it encourages reconciliation, um, counters legalism. It's not a reward for the righteous, right? It's a gift of grace to, to the needy. And so, um, you, that's actually an interesting point. I'll probably be dwelling on that for a while because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my knee jerk reaction is that's a really good point. Yeah. So, yeah. 
that's that's some good spice there. Well, hey, Thank you. If, <laughs> if I can if I can if I can convince you guys, maybe maybe more people will buy the book when it comes out in thirty years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The reality is that you can't use me as a test case because I I know I'm weird. So um, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's good. So that's helpful. So that's interesting, right? Because Old Testament scholar writing about baptism, and I think that's even you know. Well, in my young Christian years, you're like, what does an Old Testament guy know about the New Testament? But but that's that that's what's interesting. Dr. Barrick, of course, blew that out of the water when he started like, well, in the Greek it says this. You're like, okay, wait a minute, I gotta quit like thinking just because you specialize <laughs> right, just because you specialize in something you ever you know you know Christ, you have a relationship with Him, well, that doesn't make you not able to navigate. And I read the New Testament too. What? So. That's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. Stop. So, uh, um, yeah. I mean, all but to be fair, Paul preached out of the Old Testament probably most of the time. It's true. Yeah, yeah. very true. Yeah, he so, took his own letters and preached it. That's what he did. Well, yeah. <laughs> hey, so here, here, so kind of switching gears a little bit. Um, uh, baptism. So just kind of define, summarize what you, what what I heard you say about baptism is baptism is a confession of faith that of your union with Christ, um, and the washing right. The, the the immersion right. symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so there is our public procl- proclamation that we are united to Christ, that we've placed our faith in Christ, that we that, you know repentance is there, and that that we want to be identified as as God's children through the baptism publicly. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I love it. Okay. So different topic. Uh, interesting enough. Um, uh, this, this, you know, we try to stay away from kind of hot topic issues. Uh, not, not because they're, we're not interested in them. Uh, we just, the podcast is really to help people think about ministry. And so that, that's our goal, right? We want people to, to walk in wisdom so that our ministry to one another, uh, is is built upon the foundation of God's word under the headship of Christ, but also is loving to other individuals. So this might be the closest we get to a contemporary issue in, in, in 72 podcasts. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> congratulations, Peter. You have, you have, Oh man, you have, I think we should be staying away from this. I better be hanging up, man. <laughs> right, right. You're like, wait a minute, my wife is calling. Um, so, uh, but interestingly enough, uh, this this issue came. This issue has come before uh, one or two of our elders recently, and so privately, these discussions do take place. Um, and then, interesting enough, we were, we were telling one of the the elders, like, "Hey, here, here's you know, PeterGoman.com, PeterGaman.com, although it's um, us English majors." Um, <laughs> who will correct your English? Um, so that was tongue in cheek, by the way. Uh, right. So on your on your website, you you know you recently wrote an article on September sixteenth, twenty twenty three. Slavery. Why does the Bible allow it? Now, again, this this is normally not something I would I would spend a lot of time tracking down, but it is it is a question that believers do have, right? Like, mm-hmm. wait a minute. Why, when I read in the Old Testament that the Israelites had slavery, how can God be holy and allow slavery at the same time. And so uh, that's probably a fair question for people to ask, even though my knee jerk response, that person is, well, just like, I do kind of struggle a little bit with your question because it, it kind of has this presupposition that you have a, a, 
the right view of justice. Mm. And I, I would kind of like, to me, there's a, there's a hard issue there that maybe needs to be dealt with. But at the same token, I also think like, Hey, okay, this word slavery is in the Bible. And here we've got our, our resident old Testament expert. And so maybe, maybe to get your perspective and your take on this, you know, maybe kind of walk, how do you walk somebody through that question or objection or, or, you know, maybe yeah. they're struggling with it. I mean, in and, a sense, you're kind of trying to defend God's righteousness, right? Yeah. In, in some of these yeah. narratives. So, yeah. And to be fair, um, to be fair to some of the people asking the question, um, the question for me is not as prevalent. I can understand why there are some groups of people that this is a bigger deal to than maybe to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and the, and trying to recognize there are some people who grow up in some cultures and communities where this is a very this historic event, even in American history, is very prominent. It's it's you know, it's discussed. It maybe is a part of the daily life, right? Like that, these past events, you know, are influencing their present mm-hmm. way of thinking and even engagements with other people. So to be fair, right? Even though maybe for me, it's like, eh, I don't know. It's not really an issue but out of a love for my other brothers and sisters in Christ. I would need to say, okay, I don't understand why this is a big deal, but, but if this is a big deal to you, then because I'm your brother in Christ, I'll make it a big deal as well. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. I think so. Peter, did we lose you? Oh, I'm still here. I'm just <laughs> yeah. uh I'm I'm ready to jump in. Oh sweet. Uh, I, I, I was I was tracking with you guys though. Yeah, so okay. I was, I was good. Yeah, so I you know, I think from my perspective, I've I've had people ask about this and and I think this is one area where church leaders should should be concerned because the world is going to push back against the church on things like this. And and yes, in one sense the world has no authority to speak into the church, but but for the sake of fellow believers, you know, this this could be an area where oh, I don't know how to I don't know how to talk to my neighbor who who just said, you know, how could you how could you believe the Bible? The Bible promotes slavery. You know, well, how should I think about that? And so that's really what caused me to kind of study the issue and think through it a little bit because I, I do think I do think that that is uh, you know we, we could we could discuss the ramifications of what kind of discussions we should be having with unbelievers and all that but I do think that as believers we should be able to accurately assess these situations and say okay how should I think about this because you know, you know we're being told, you know, day after day by everybody in our culture that slavery is the worst evil known to mankind. And so if the Bible endorses that, that sounds terrible. Well, you know, the big point is we should have, should have some thoughts on that. And, and the way I typically approach it is this. Um, I encourage people to think about slavery not monolithically. And what I mean by that is that you can't, think that all slavery is the same because as soon as you think that all slavery is the kind of slavery that North America practiced in enslaving Africans, uh, those of different ethnicities that are going to be bound, uh, in perpetual lifelong slavery, that already you're on the wrong foot. 
And so oftentimes I've actually had a chance to deal with unbelievers who ask this question. And sometimes what I'll ask them is when they say, when they say, oh, slavery is wrong, I'll often ask them, what kind of slavery are you talking about? What kind of slavery do you have an issue with? And they kind of get taken aback because they're saying, well, wait a second. All slavery is bad. All slavery is bad. All slavery is bad. And that's, you know, what's been drilled into them, but they haven't actually thought about the fact that there may be differences in how some of these, um, some of these slavery systems have operated. Now, I'm not, I'm not denying, like even you, you guys even said that there, you know, people have had real ramifications. I even talked to one of my, uh, one of my African American brothers at church who said that his grandma would tell him stories about what it was like, um, in slavery because that was, you know, her, uh, her near existence. She had memories of, of that world and things like that. And so, yeah, we're not denying that that had, I mean, even, even not too long ago had real ramifications in American history. But to assume that just because the Bible mentions the word slavery, that it's essentially identical with what we experience in American history is just historically inaccurate and naive. And so really, I think that needs to be a correction right out of the gate is that the Bible has a different context with slavery. And so Old and New Testament actually have slightly different issues with regard to this. I'll make some comments on uh, Old Testament slavery, but um, you know, I, I welcome if you want to ask follow-ups on New Testament or anything. But with regard to Old Testament uh, in particular, uh, a lot of the slavery that was involved was a lot of the laws that detailed slavery was actually inter-Hebrew slavery. And what I mean by that is Hebrews, quote-unquote, enslaving other Hebrews. Now, some of our English translations actually uh, use different language just because of, oh, slavery is, is bad language. And so they'll say things like indenture or serve or anything like that, right? But really the, the component of Israelite law was that there, was, there were times and situations where a Hebrew uh, man or woman sometimes uh, would be enslaved to a fellow Israelite. And now here's the difference, okay, or here's the key contextual factor to that, is that their world was so different. I mean, they didn't have banks. They didn't have money, really. I mean, their money was essentially grain, sheep, oxen. You know, we take so much for granted. Our system, we just assume things have always been this way. But ask yourself, what would you do? This is like for the listener and everybody. uh, What would you do if you if if you owed a debt you couldn't pay what would you do if you owed a debt you couldn't pay well you know we have we have recourses for that we could we could borrow money we could do all the things now ask yourself the question what would you do in the old testament world as an israelite if you owed a debt you could not pay well they didn't have as many recourses that basically their only recourse was to hire themselves out to enslave themselves to a fellow israelite uh, to work off their debt. And so they would say, hey, you know what? Um, I, I owe you all this money that I can't pay, so I'm going to work for you until I pay that off. Now, here's the thing that people don't realize is that once that, and this, this is why, again, the Bible version of slavery is, is quite different than, than the American context, which we're all familiar with. In the Old Testament world, if you owed, a certain, let's say you owed two years worth of, of wages or something like that, you work for two years, 
and you're no longer a slave. You're set free, right? But here's the thing. Even if you owed, let's say you owed 30 years of wages. Let's say you really did not know how to run the Israeli stock market at that time, you know, whatever. Obviously, there's no stock market. But let's say you, you, you really blow it. You lose all this money. You can't pay. You have 30 years of work. Well, the maximum amount of time that you could be enslaved to work off that debt was six years. So they had built into the system that uh, in a, there, there's a way that you can, uh, you're always set free every seventh year for the, for the sabbaticals and celebrations and your debt is forgiven and all that. And so you, the maximum amount of time you, you could work off that debt. I mean, technically you were slave, but the maximum amount of time you could work off that debt was uh, six years. And then the seventh year you'd be set free, even if you owed much more. Uh, so there, there is difference there in how that would work. Now, I've, I've had some people tell me, you know, that sounds a lot like the military to me. You know, just be like people people say, oh, uh, I'm going to the military pays for my school, but then I have to give four years or eight years to military service. They tell me what to do, when to stand up, when to when I have a chance to go visit my family. They, they rule my life. Well, that's essentially what's going on in a lot of the Old Testament perspectives of slavery with the Hebrew Israelite Israelite slave relationships. Now, there was other versions of slavery as well for foreigners, but in those cases, it was usually uh, giving, giving Israel's enemies a chance to live. Uh, now, Israel was actually forbidden from, from taking offensive war against their enemies. Uh, they, they were not supposed to go on, apart from the conquest of Joshua and Caleb and that generation of Israelites, they weren't supposed to engage in offensive war. But if in the course of war, they were engaging against their enemies and they achieved victory, they were to offer uh, slavery as an option for the people who had been the aggressor against them, which, you know, again, we might say, how dare they? Well, it's that or engage in a, in a battle to the death. I mean, is it death or slavery? What's better? And really, slavery in that capacity would largely be you can, you can stay in your city but when you're working, you're going to have to pay us out of your working. You're going to have to tithe to us and, and pay your tribute and all that. And so, yeah, I, I, I just think all that to say that was a lengthy answer. But I, I just think a lot of people want to give this one shot, you know, uppercut to the Bible saying, ah, I got you because the Bible talks about slavery. But I think we, we really need to be careful and think through, you know, what exactly let's define what slavery actually looks like, according to the Bible. And, you know, you know, this might seem controversial, but I think the way that I just described slavery operating in the Old Testament isn't isn't really that offensive. I think we would we would talk about, yeah, this, you know, in, in a fallen world where where people lose money, they have to pay their debts and things like that. This this seems to be especially in light of the cultural context in which they were. This seems to be a very workable system. And in some ways, you know, this is a really controversial thing in some ways it actually works better than our system where we often just send people to jail and just say, Oh yeah, well you have to go to jail. They don't, they don't actually ever pay off their debt they, because jail doesn't <laughs> well, or worst case scenario being in jail, people are paying off the debt to the state instead of to the person that they owed the money to. Huh, and so, so it's, it's all a mess. And yeah. so, so all I'm saying is don't be too hard on the Bible. I mean, it's, yeah, we, we live in a different cultural context, but there's I think there's good ways to think through these these views. 
So I do have a question. Um, not, not just the heart of slavery, at least North American slavery, was a devaluing of the humanity of people. They they were looked at as less than human. Um, and I'd imagine like slavery was in, in every generation, every culture at, at some level, right? Um, in the Near Eastern cultures of Old Testament times, was were, was a slavery in other countries? I, I, I'm assuming they're different the way they the way they did slavery versus the way um, the Israelites did slavery. Is that correct, or my reach? Yeah. Okay. No, that's that's actually a great observation. And now I have to I have to flaunt my ignorance a little bit here because I I'm aware I know where it is on my computer, um, but I. I don't want. I can't take time to look for it, but it's there's an article that that I read a few years ago. I just wish I had better memory. Where it's a comparison of Hittite laws on slavery and the biblical laws on slavery, mm. and it's not even close. I mean, this this evidence is out there, but you compare the Hittite version of slavery compared to the biblical version of slavery, and it's night and day. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, Hittite. Uh, forms of slavery were were a lot more uh, demeaning of their slaves. The slave owners could do a lot of different things. You you read the biblical laws on slavery. This is how you need to treat them as as fellow human beings. In fact, if you hurt them in certain ways, you have to let them go, and you need to give them their freedom without without them owing anything. Uh, the the value of a slave was was uh, you know regarded as the same as as a free person, and so there's. Yeah, I think the as the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament talks about slavery, there's there's massive differences. And that's another thing to consider is that by every standard, what was practiced in North America and even South America and well, even Europe and, and Africa for that matter, I mm-hmm. mean the slavery does exist everywhere, um, which was often a racially motivated form of slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. so the this racially motivated slavery and demeaning and devaluing of human beings, uh, laws, no laws against uh, mistreatment of individuals and all that. Well, that, that, would be, that would be wrong on every level according to both Old and New Testament uh, descriptions and expectations of how, how that should have been in operation. So, so, yeah, I think we can all agree about the atrocities and just terrible nature of what we've seen uh, with regard to slavery, but it's just a really good thing to remember that slavery has always existed in different forms, in different contexts, and we can't just broad brush everything saying everything is the exact same. Uh, I think ideally we're very happy that there, that we are in a system now where there's so much more flexibility that people, people don't need to work for a specific individual. They can get a loan and then work really hard to pay that off or something like that. And that gives a lot more flexibility, but really that is quite similar to what the old Testament was trying to do to begin with. Yeah. I was going to say the people, North American slavery, they justified slavery uh, with the Bible. Um, And obviously, you know, their hermeneutic was off there. (laughs) So, Oh yeah. Well, I mean, that's, well, that's par for the course, right? Because, for every person that interprets the Bible correctly, you're going to have 10 people that use the Bible to justify whatever wickedness they want. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too. Had, had, um, civil war era slavery been the same as biblical slavery. Um, interesting. I'm reading a lot on civil war right now 
And there's definitely some some narrative being promoted right now that is actually not factually accurate historically. Uh, but a lot of those slaves coming out of Africa were kidnapped by residents in Africa and sold. And so right. I was I was looking at Exodus twenty one too because that was that was your reference for every six years and the seventh year he's got to go free. But down there in twenty one sixteen, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he's found in his possession, that guy shall surely be put to death. And so what's interesting mm. is the Lord would not have condoned on any level the slave trade coming out of Africa. And a lot of people exactly. aren't even aware of this, that when the South um, left the Union and they actually outlawed buying slaves from Africa because of the unjust practices of the way that those slaves were sold. So it's, it's interesting how it, it almost, you know, it's speculation because the, the civil war ended it. And, and again, I'm glad the civil war ended, ended the American style of slavery. Um, Right, because it's hard to say, yay, slavery, right? Like, no way do right. we, we want to advocate that. But even they started to, even they had recognized that something wrong was going on over in Africa. And, and countries were starting to, to back away from that system because they were realizing the injustice and the injustice of the whole system. And you and wonder. Largely. You, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that was largely because of Christian influence yes, in, in yes. many of those locations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, McPherson, I think is the book I'm reading now. He, he actually has in his introduction, I think about a 10, 10 page section on the role of the church. And he starts talking about how, how pastors were starting to bring to bear the sin of slavery and why why the system was corrupt, and so you started to actually have even a splitting in the denominations, and there were a lot of pastors and believers in the South that were against slavery, just like in the North, and then a lot of people don't realize this. You actually had people in the North that didn't care and were pro-slavery, so mm -hmm. it's like when you said earlier, nothing is as monolithic as we make it out. This is the same issue. Nothing yeah. is monolithic yeah. in the issue, and that, right. that's, yeah, that's the problem is we recreate these narratives and we probably at some level are, are unfortunately creating the sin of misrepresentation at some level too, because we're maybe sweeping the, the brush too broadly. So, I mean, at the heart level, even, even with the abolishment of slavery, um, it didn't mean they changed their mind about, um, about, about the devaluing of human life. That's true. So they still thought less human of, of certain cultures or certain peoples, even if they were pro uh, abolishment, which is interesting. Yeah. So in the New Testament, my take on the New Testament slavery was always more of an indentured servant style of slavery that was being practiced in the Greco-Roman era. Is that accurate? I mean, is that I didn't read your article on it, by the way. Is that yeah? Is that the you take knew it was you there? Took? You just didn't read it. Yeah. yeah well, we, well yeah. <laughs> you don't read everything that I write. How dare you? That's all. That's all <laughs> I, I almost have it. Yeah. It's because the scratch and sniff wasn't working. And so it was hard for it. Was, it was, I, I need that not words. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I'm still working on that to get that digitally. To, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Format that way. Um, yeah. I, I think that, I think that that comparison can stand. I mean, you look at new Testament again, new Testament slavery is largely taking place in the Roman world. And, 
the, the Roman form of slavery, it's interesting when you research this, a lot of the slaves actually were more well-educated and in some cases had, had a, had quite a high social status uh, than, than their masters. And so one of the things I point out in my article, and there, there are lots of academic treatments on this, but the social status of slaves was, was largely unhindered. And part of the reason that's possible is because slavery wasn't based on race at all in, in Rome. I say at all. I'm sure there are probably some, um, some exceptions to that. Uh, but by and large, you, you walk down the street of Rome and you have, you know, massive amounts of slaves, but there's really no way of telling, you know, who is who. Uh, you just have massive amounts of slavery. In fact, uh, th- there are some differences as, uh, statistically about how many people were in slavery, but some, some uh, historians estimate as much as 30 to 40 percent of the total population was slave. Uh, and it gets more complicated because some slaves, while they were slaves, could actually own other slaves. And so it's like really kind of a weird hierarchical system. It is uh, so, so there are some complications there, but but usually um, you have you would have these these slaves who would who would you know uh, they would they would exist in servitude of some capacity. They could be a tutor for a young a young child. They could they could serve militarily. They could do all sorts of things. But uh, the some of the historians I, w- I was reading about that said that it was usual for slaves to be freed around the age of thirty, uh, and part of that. Uh, sequence of events those slaves would then join society as free persons and and buy their own slaves and you know the cycle would just continue and so yeah it's not it's i guess the way i would look at it is is it's less absolute it's less finalized than how we often think of slavery being like oh because you have a certain skin color therefore you are always a slave and you will always be viewed as a lesser individual but in rome it wasn't really like that you had this mixing pot of different ethnicities and uh your skin color never really determined whether you were a slave or not it was it was simply a matter of you know again some estimates were 30 40 percent of the total population uh were slaves and so again it's uh again a different different kind of you know everyone wants to just you know again label everything the exact same but but there's definitely some differences between how the, the roman world practices slavery uh, versus the New Test, or versus our contemporary context with uh, African uh, slave trade coming to the Americas. Yeah, that's helpful. I think in the end, I mean, I think like God is still holy, right, and, and He's still right, and um, it, it doesn't mar His character in any way. We're importing our version into you know a different culture, different time, uh, and that's that's really unfair. They're people of their time, and yeah, this yeah. is different. Well, we're very prone to read his, history, uh, you know, read our modern context back into history and, and assume it. And that, that's, that's the one thing. I've read enough history now to know that, I mean, we just, it's almost like George Washington cut down the cherry tree, you know. And, and so those little, like, pithy one-liner, like, it's amazing how, how much we think, oh, that's what it was like. And it's like you – you read the introduction to some of these history books and you go, okay, um, you, you can't trust the media or culture at all to even be 5% right in the way they tell history. And so it's, 
it's one it's one reason why I tell my boys you need to read more history. But but I would think even for adults, honestly, you should read one one history book a year at minimum. I can't make a rule of that, but you would you would help you out a lot. Um, you can't make a rule, but if you don't, you're not a Christian. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, that's yes, exactly. Um, yeah, this is funny because last night in the women's, I was like, "There's a reason why I I know it'd be easier as a pastor to make twenty rules, but I'm not, you know." There's a reason why yeah. we don't do that, even though it'd be easier on all of us. You, we can't do that actually. So uh, it's, you know, cause I've definitely now on the new Testament side, I've actually done a lot more reading on that and that, that everything you said coordinates with what I read. And in a lot of ways it was like slavery was like uh, grad school or right. Like you got some school, but then you're like, Hey, but I want to be an attorney uh, or I want to be a doctor or, you know, um, so you're starting your practice, but you don't have money. And so you don't have a bank system there to loan you the money. Uh, and so what do you do? You, you then sign on to, you know, attorney Smith's attorney at law. And you're like, Hey, for 10 years, I'm going to be your slave. And there were, there were terms of agreements. Right. And so the attorney Smith is adopting the financial burden of taking care of you but oftentimes you're even still making some money so that in 10 years when that, when that contract is up, you're then walking out the door, but there were legal protections for both of you. And I think even kind of in, in perusing the old Testament, and you mentioned this in your article that, that, that uh, Israelites were not allowed to mistreat their slaves. Uh, and what's interesting is, is sometimes the people that are trying to like got you with this slavery thing will be like, well, but look, they could beat their slaves. And, and there's a part of me, it's like, actually, if you read the old Testament there, there's a lot of punishments for a lot of reasons. And so it's not just right. So maybe, maybe you can talk about that in the old Testament, right? It's not just, Hey, it was okay to beat your slaves. Like in a sense there, there were, there were punishments for both. There were punishments and protected protections in place for that relationship. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think even, even beyond, well, I, you know, you think about the standard built into the law itself. Uh, there were protections for, you know, men, women, children, slaves. I mean, it's all there and it, it may, you know, I'm not denying that there may be discrepancies with how we view certain things in modernity. We might say, uh, we might say, now, wait a second, this is how I think it should be done. But holistically, especially when you compare Israelite law to <clears throat> some of the other uh, cultural uh, facets of ancient Near Eastern systems, whether it be the Hittites, whether it be um, Ugarit or some of these other law codes, Babylonians or whatever, um, th- there is a marked difference there. And th- there, there is a very gracious um, aspect of God's care for his people at every level. And so I do think uh, that, in, that does include judgment, to be sure, but there's also you know, allowance uh, for uh, forgiveness and mercy and all these different things. Yeah. So if I, and so if I were a slave to Gino in the, in the old Testament system, like I, I even had legal recourse to take Gino to to court or before the judges, right. For mistreatment, just like Gino could say, Hey, this guy just killed three of my other 
you know, three, three of his oh, yeah. coworkers. So now I've got to bring him for indictment. And I think that's, you know, when I hear the objections, a lot of times I feel like there's some context lost in the objection. So I guess maybe what pastorally, what I want to say is when people find these, like, Oh, there's a one, like they always drop the law. Like they're these one liner mic drops. And I always want to be like, you know, there's always a context, even to the statutes in the old Testament what does the whole paragraph say? What's the whole chapter say? Because I, right, I sometimes wonder if when we put a Bible verse on it, if the way we read that often is to devoid of its context. But all those statutes are in a broader context. And so you, it's not just as easy as, well, Exodus 21, 2 says this. Like there's kind of a like, well, yeah, but, but what's it saying in its, in its broader context? Like, you know what I mean? Right. And I would even add to that saying laws need to be interpreted holistically in mind with other laws. Mm, yeah, uh, and that's okay. something we, we often, we often miss is that we assume each law is isolated, but the reality is that the judges and the elders of Israel would interpret a situation, uh, bringing multiple laws to bear. And of oh. course there are famous, famous examples of that one. Uh, <laughs> we don't, I don't know if we want to get to this, but in Deuteronomy, it talks about how uh, a, a woman who, a certain woman who's not engaged to be married to anybody, if she gets raped, uh, it says she must marry her rapist, essentially. And people look at that law and they say, oh, that is just so unkind for God to force a woman who is raped to marry her rapist. But one of the things I point out is that there's nothing that indicates that there are, no, or, or to put it this way, other laws that come from that very chapter, which I think is Deuteronomy 21, 20 or 21, I can't remember. But uh, there's nothing in that context that, that, that means this verse should be thought of isolated. It's in a context of how to take care of situations where, where there's a man who intrudes himself on, on a young woman. And in many of those instances, you put the young man to death. But in this particular instance, because she has no recourse in society to be taken care of, the law mandates that he must take care of her for, uh, his, for his whole life. He can't ever divorce her. And people say, well, death would be worse than that. Well, the thing that people point out in the Old Testament world is that other laws seem to indicate that she she has a choice it's not it's not she doesn't have to do that that is there if she wants to do that but she could also live in her brother's house or uh, live with her father or marry somebody else she could do those other things as well hypothetically uh and that's what a judge would would allow uh her to go through i mean that happened to uh to david's uh, David's family with Amnon, when, when he rapes Tamar, Tamar ends and goes and lives in her brother's house instead of uh, uh, being married to Amnon. So, so we have examples of that even in the narrative. And so it's just a good reminder, the whole point, I know it's a controversial example, but the whole point is that you have to uh, remember that a lot of these laws are not meant to be exhaustive, that they are also being applied in specific scenarios. See, and that proves our point that we've here in Cornerstone, we've been trying to like inform our people. A lot of following Christ is actually requires wisdom, not rules. And so it's interesting. What you just brought to bear is, is even these old Testament laws require wisdom in order to, to flesh them out of what that really means. 
And and that is which actually then makes the people raising the objection look a little more foolish. Because you know what I mean? It's it's they're, right. they're it's it's like almost in the like, hey, if you want to try to gotcha, like actually, you know, the misinformed are gonna look more misinformed by the gotcha statement. Mm. All right. Hey Peter, it's been great to have you. Um uh we're we'll try to have you on again if that's okay yeah, with we you. Didn't, we didn't talk about the law. Yeah, we, we have so many now Old Testament questions we need to ask. And <laughs> and I love that right, even with that new pers- the new the new testament perspective. I almost said the new perspective. That would have got us in a lot of trouble. Um right with the New Testament perspective, you know, bringing the bear and so I appreciate your work. I appreciate your book. Uh thankful for your time together with us today. Um yeah. So we'll keep reading your stuff and yeah keep pumping it out thanks so much for having me on guys it was a lot of fun yeah all right well let's uh we'll close you out with anthony and then say goodbye off air is that fair sounds good all right uh again thanks anthony uh anthony one of our guitarists and corporate worship we'll we'll keep baiting him and one day he'll listen and he he won't know that we owe him like five million dollars i know we're gonna owe him so many lunches at some point yeah Yeah. all right (laughs) all right thanks anthony Mm -hmm.